Part 1, Chapter 3 of No More Parades. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 3. The one thing that stood out sharply in Teachin's mind when, at last, with a stiff glass of rum punch, his officer's pocket book, complete with pencil because he had to draft before eleven a report as to the desirability of giving his unit special lectures on the causes of the war, and a cheap French novel on a camp chair beside him, he sat in his flea bag with six army blankets over him. The one thing that stood out as sharply as staff tabs was that that ass Levin was rather pathetic. His unnailed boot soles very much cramping his action on the frozen hillside, he had alternately hobbled a step or two and, reduced to inaction, had grabbed at Teachin's elbow while he brought out breathlessly puzzled sentences. There resulted a singular mosaic of extraordinary bright-coloured and melodramatic statements for Levin, who first hobbled down the hill with Teachin's and then hobbled back up, clinging to his arm, brought out monstrosities of news about Sylvia's activities, without any sequence, and indeed without any apparent aim, except for the great affection he had for Teachin's himself. All sorts of singular things seemed to have been going on round him in the vague zone, outside all this engrossed and dust-coloured world, in the vague zone that held, oh, the civilian population, tea parties short of butter. And as Teachin's, seated on his hams, his knees up, pulled the soft wooliness of his flea-bag under his chin and damned the paraffin heater for letting out a new and singular stink, it seemed to him that this affair was like coming back after two months and trying to get the hang of battalion orders. You come back to the familiar, slightly battered mess anteroom. You tell the mess orderly to bring you the last two months' orders, for it is as much as your life is worth not to know what is or is not in them. There might be an ACI ordering you to wear your helmet back to the front, or a battalion order that Mills bombs must always be worn in the left breast pocket. Or there might be the detail of putting on a new gas helmet. The orderly hands you a dishevelled mass of faintly typewritten matter, thumbed out of all chance of legibility, with the orders for November 26th fastened inextricably into the middle of those for the 1st of December, and those for the 10th, 25th and 29th missing altogether. And all that you gather is that headquarters has some exceedingly insulting things to say about A Company, that a fellow called Hartop, whom you didn't know, has been deprived of his commission, that at a court of inquiry held to ascertain deficiencies in C Company, Captain Wells, Paul Wells one, has been assessed at twenty pounds eleven shillings and fourpence, which he is requested to pay forthwith to the adjutant. So on that black hillside, going and returning, what stuck out for Teachins was that Levin had been taught by the general to consider that he, Teachins, was an extraordinarily violent chap who would certainly knock Levin down when he told him that his wife was at the camp gates, that Levin considered himself to be the descendant of an ancient Quaker family, Teachins had said, good God, at that, that the mysterious rows to which in his fear Levin had been continually referring had been successive letters from Sylvia to the harried general, and that Sylvia had accused him, Teachins, of stealing two pairs of her best sheets. There was a great deal more, but having faced what he considered to be the worst of the situation, Teachins set himself coolly to recapitulate every aspect of his separation from his wife. He had meant to face every aspect, 
not that merely social one upon which hitherto he had automatically imagined their disunion to rest. For, as he saw it, English people of good position consider that the basis of all marital unions or disunions is the maxim, no scenes. Obviously, for the sake of the servants, who are the same thing as the public. No scenes, then, for the sake of the public, and indeed with him the instinct for privacy, as to his relationships, his passions, or even as to his most unimportant motives, was as strong as the instinct of life itself. He would literally rather be dead than an open book. And, until that afternoon, he had imagined that his wife too would rather be dead than have her affairs canvassed by the other ranks. But that assumption had to be gone over, revised. Of course, he might say she had gone mad, but if he said she had gone mad, he would have to revise a great deal of their relationships, so it would be as broad as it was long. The doctor's batman from the other end of the hut said, Poor old Nine Morgan, in a sing-song, mocking voice. For though, hours before, Teachens had appointed this moment of physical ease that usually followed on his splurging heavily down onto his creaking camp-bed in the doctor's lent hut, for the cool consideration of his relations with his wife, it was not turning out a very easy matter. The hut was unreasonably warm. He had invited Mackenzie, whose real name turned out to be McKechnie, James Grant McKechnie, to occupy the other end of it. The other end of it was divided from him by a partition of canvas and a striped Indian curtain. And McKechnie, who was unable to sleep, had elected to carry on a long and interminable conversation with the doctor's batman. The doctor's batman also could not sleep, and, like McKechnie, was more than a little balmy on the crumpet, an almost non-English-speaking Welshman from God knows what up-country valley. He had shaggy hair like a Caribbean savage and two dark, resentful wall eyes. Being a miner, he sat on his heels more comfortably than on a chair, and his almost incomprehensible voice went on in a low sort of ululation, with an occasionally and startlingly comprehensible phrase sticking out now and then. It was troublesome, but orthodox enough. The Batman had been blown literally out of most of his senses and the 6th Battalion of the Glamorganshire Regiment by some German high explosive or other more than a year ago. But before then, it appeared, he had been in McKechnie's own company in that battalion. It was perfectly in order that an officer should gossip with a private formerly of his own platoon or company, especially on first meeting him after long separation caused by a casualty to one or the other. And McKechnie had first re-met this scoundrel Johns, or Evans, at eleven that night, two and a half hours before. So there, in the light of a single candle stuck in a stout bottle, they were tranquilly at it, the batman sitting on his heels by the officer's head, the officer in his pyjamas sprawling half out of bed over his pillows, stretching his arms abroad, occasionally yawning, occasionally asking, What became of Company Sergeant Major Hoyt? They might talk till half-past three. But that was troublesome to a gentleman seeking to recapture what exactly were his relations with his wife. Before the doctor's batman had interrupted him by speaking startlingly of O'Nine Morgan, Teachens had got as far as what follows with his recapitulation. The lady, Mrs. Teachens, was certainly without mitigation a whore. 
He himself, equally certainly and without qualification, had been physically faithful to the lady and their marriage tie. In law, then, he was absolutely in the right of it, but that fact had less weight than a cobweb. For after the last of her high-handed divagations from fidelity, he had accorded to the lady the shelter of his roof and of his name. She had lived for years beside him, apparently on terms of hatred and miscomprehension, but certainly in conditions of chastity. Then, during the tenuous and lugubrious small hours before his coming out there again to France, she had given evidence of a madly vindictive passion for his person, a physical passion at any rate. Well, those were times of mad, fugitive emotions. But even in the calmest times, a man could not expect to have a woman live with him as the mistress of his house and mother of his heir without establishing some sort of claim upon him. They hadn't slept together. But was it not possible that a constant measuring together of your minds was as proper to give you a proprietary right as the measuring together of the limbs? It was perfectly possible. Well then, what in the eyes of God severed a union? Certainly he had imagined, until that very afternoon, that their union had been cut, as the tendon of Achilles is cut in a hamstringing, by Sylvia's clear voice outside his house, saying in the dawn to a cabman, Paddington! He tried to go with extreme care through every detail of their last interview in his still nearly dark drawing-room, at the other end of which he had seemed a mere white phosphorescence. They had, then, parted for good on that day. He was going out to France, she into retreat in a convent near Birkenhead, to which place you go from Paddington. Well then, that was one parting. That, surely, set him free for the girl. He took a sip from the glass of rum and water on the canvas chair beside him. It was tepid and therefore beastly. He had ordered the batman to bring at him hot, strong and sweet, because he had been certain of an incipient cold. He had refrained from drinking it because he had remembered that he was to think cold-bloodedly of Sylvia, and he made a practice of never touching alcohol when about to engage in protracted reflection. That had always been his theory, and had been immensely and empirically strengthened by his warlike experience. On the Somme in the summer... When stand-to had been at four in the morning, you would come out of your dugout and survey, with a complete outfit of pessimistic thoughts, a dim, grey, repulsive landscape over a dull and much too thin parapet. There would be repellent posts, altogether too fragile entanglements of barbed wire, broken wheels, detritus, coils of mist over the positions of revolting Germans, grey stillness grey horrors in front and behind amongst the civilian populations, and clear, hard outlines to every thought. Then your batman brought you a cup of tea with a little, quite a little, rum in it. In three or four minutes the whole world changed beneath your eyes. The wire aprons became jolly efficient protections that your skill had devised and for which you might thank God. The broken wheels were convenient landmarks for raiding at night in no man's land. You had to confess that when you had re-erected that parapet, after it had been last jammed in, your company had made a pretty good job of it. And even as far as the Germans were concerned, you were there to kill the swine, but you didn't feel that the thought of them would make you sick beforehand. You were, in fact, a changed man. 
with a mind of a different specific gravity. He could not even tell that the roseate touches of dawn on the mists were not really the effects of rum. Therefore he had determined not to touch his grog. But his throat had gone completely dry, so mechanically he had reached out for something to drink, checking himself when he had realised what he was doing. But why should his throat be dry? He hadn't been on the drink. He had not even had any dinner. And why was he in this extraordinary state? For he was in an extraordinary state. It was because the idea had suddenly occurred to him that his parting from his wife had set him free for his girl. The idea had till then never entered his head. He said to himself, we must go methodically into this, methodically into the history of his last day on earth. Because he swore that when he had come out to France this time, he had imagined that he was cutting loose from this earth. And during the months that he had been there, he had seemed to have no connection with any earthly things. He had imagined Sylvia in her convent and done with. Miss Wanup he had not been able to imagine at all, but she had seemed to be done with. It was difficult to get his mind back to that night. You cannot force your mind to a deliberate consecutive recollection unless you are in the mood. Then it will do whether you want it to or not. He had had then, three months or so ago, a very painful morning with his wife, the pain coming from a suddenly growing conviction that his wife was forcing herself into an attitude of caring for him. Only an attitude, probably, because in the end Sylvia was a lady and would not allow herself really to care for the person in the world for whom it would be least decent of her to care. But she would be perfectly capable of forcing herself to take that attitude if she thought that it would enormously inconvenience himself. But that wasn't the way, wasn't the way, wasn't the way his excited mind said to himself. He was excited because it was possible that Miss Wanup too might not have meant their parting to be a permanency. That opened up an immense perspective. Nevertheless, the contemplation of that immense perspective was not the way to set about a calm analysis of his relations with his wife. The facts of the story must be stated before the moral. He said to himself that he must put in exact language, as if he were making a report for the use of garrison headquarters, the history of himself in his relationship to his wife. And to Miss Wanup, of course. Better put it in writing, he said. Well then. He clutched at his pocketbook and wrote in large, pencilled characters. When I married Miss Satisfaite, he was attempting exactly to imitate a report to General Headquarters, unknown to myself, she imagined herself to be with child by a fellow called Drake. I think she was not. The matter is debatable. I am passionately attached to the child who is my heir and the heir of a family of considerable position. The lady was subsequently, on several occasions, though I do not know how many, unfaithful to me. She left me with a fellow called Perone, whom she had met constantly at the house of my godfather, General Lord Edward Campion, on whose staff Perone was. That was long before the war. This intimacy was, of course, certainly unsuspected by the General. Perone is again on the staff of General Campion, who has the quality of attachment to his old subordinates, but as Perone is an inefficient officer, he is used only for more decorative jobs. Otherwise, obviously, as he is an old regular, his seniority should make him a general, 
and he is only a major. I make this diversion about Perone because his presence in this garrison causes me natural personal annoyance. My wife, after an absence of several months with Perone, wrote and told me that she wished to be taken back into my household. I allowed this. My principles prevent me from divorcing any woman, in particular any woman who is the mother of a child. As I had taken no steps to ensure publicity for the escapade of Mrs. Teachens, no one, as far as I know, was aware of her absence. Mrs. Teachens, being a Roman Catholic, is prevented from divorcing me. During this absence of Mrs. Teachens with the man Perone, I made the acquaintance of a young woman, Miss Wanup, the daughter of my father's oldest friend, who was also an old friend of General Campion's. Our station in society naturally forms rather a close ring. I was immediately aware that I had formed a sympathetic but not violent attachment for Miss Wanup, and fairly confident that my feeling was returned. Neither Miss Wanup nor myself, being persons to talk about the state of our feelings, we exchanged no confidences. A disadvantage of being English of a certain station. The position continued thus for several years, six or seven. After her return from her excursion with Perone, Mrs. Teachens remained, I believe, perfectly chaste. I saw Miss Wanup sometimes frequently for a period in her mother's house or on social occasions, sometimes not for long intervals. No expression of affection on the part of either of us ever passed, not one ever. On the day before my second going out to France, I had a very painful scene with my wife, during which, for the first time, we went into the question of the parentage of my child and other matters. In the afternoon I met Miss Wanup by appointment outside the war office. The appointment had been made by my wife, not by me. I knew nothing about it. My wife must have been more aware of my feelings for Miss Wanup than I was myself. In St. James Park, I invited Miss Wanup to become my mistress that evening. She consented and made an assignation. It is to be presumed that that was evidence of her affection for me. We have never exchanged words of affection. Presumably a young lady does not consent to go to bed with a married man without feeling affection for him. But I have no proof. It was, of course, only a few hours before my going out to France. Those are emotional sorts of moments for young women. No doubt they consent more easily. But we didn't. We were together at one thirty in the morning, leaning over her suburban garden gate, and nothing happened. We agreed that we were the sort of persons who didn't. I do not know how we agreed. We never finished a sentence. Yet it was a passionate scene. So I touched the brim of my cap and said, So long. Or she, I don't remember. I remember the thoughts I thought and the thoughts I gave her credit for thinking, but perhaps she did not think them. There is no knowing. It is no good going into them, except that I gave her credit for thinking that we were parting for good. Perhaps she did not mean that. Perhaps I could write letters to her and live. He exclaimed, God, what a sweat I am in. The sweat, indeed, was pouring down his temples. He became instinct with a sort of passion to let his thoughts wander into epithets and go about where they would, but he stuck at it. 
He was determined to get it expressed. He wrote on again. I got home towards two in the morning and went into the dining room in the dark. I did not need a light. I sat thinking for a long time. Then Sylvia spoke from the other end of the room. There was thus an abominable situation. I have never been spoken to with such hatred. She went, perhaps, mad. She had, apparently, been banking on the idea that if I had physical contact with Miss Wanup, I might satisfy my affection for the girl and feel physical desires for her. But she knew, without my speaking, that I had not had physical contact with the girl. She threatened to ruin me, to ruin me in the army, to drag my name through the mud. I never spoke. I am damn good at not speaking. She struck me in the face and went away. Afterwards, she threw into the room, through the half-open doorway, a gold medallion of St. Michael, the R.C. patron of soldiers in action, that she had worn between her breasts. I took it to mean the final act of parting. As if by no longer wearing it, she abandoned all prayer for my safety. It might just as well mean that she wished me to wear it myself for my personal protection. I heard her go down the stairs with her maid. The dawn was just showing through the chimney pots opposite. I heard her say, Paddington, clear high syllables, and a motor drove off. I got my things together and went to Waterloo. Mrs. Satisfate, her mother, was waiting to see me off. She was very distressed that her daughter had not come too. She was of opinion that it meant we had parted for good. I was astonished to find that Sylvia had told her mother about Miss Wanup, because Sylvia had always been extremely reticent, even to her mother. Mrs. Satisfaite, who was very distressed, she likes me, expressed the most gloomy forebodings as to what Sylvia might not be up to. I laughed at her. She began to tell me a long anecdote about what her father Consett, Sylvia's confessor, had said about Sylvia years before. He had said that if I ever came to care for another woman, Sylvia would tear the world to pieces to get at me, meaning to disturb my equanimity. It was difficult to follow, Mrs. Satterthwaite. The side of an officer's train going off is not a good place for confidences. So the interview ended rather untidily. At this point, Teachens groaned so audibly that McKechnie, from the other end of the hut, asked if he had not said anything. Teachens saved himself with, That candle looks from here to be too near the side of the hut. Perhaps it isn't. These buildings are very inflammable. It was no good going on writing. He was no writer, and this writing gave no sort of psychological pointers. He wasn't himself ever much the man for psychology, but one ought to be as efficient at it as at anything else. Well then, what was at the bottom of all the madness and cruelty that had distinguished both himself and Sylvia on his last day and night in his native country? For, Mark, it was Sylvia who had made, unknown to him, the appointment through which the girl had met him. Sylvia had wanted to force him and Miss Wanup into each other's arms, quite definitely, she had said as much, but she had only said that afterwards, when the game had not come off. She had had too much knowledge of amatory manoeuvres to show her hand before. Why then had she done it? Partly, undoubtedly, out of pity for him. She had given him a rotten time. 
She had undoubtedly at one moment wanted to give him the consolation of his girl's arms. Why, damn it, she, Sylvia, and no one else had forced out of him the invitation to the girl to become his mistress. Nothing but the infernal cruelty of their interview of the morning could have forced him to the pitch of sexual excitement that would make him make a proposal of illicit intercourse to a young woman to whom hitherto he had spoken not even one word of affection. It was an effect of a sadic kind. That was the only way to look at it, scientifically. And without doubt Sylvia had known what she was doing, the whole morning, at intervals, like a person directing the whiplash to a cruel spot of pain, reiteratedly, she had gone on and on. She had accused him of having Valentine won up for his mistress. She had accused him of having Valentine won up for his mistress. She had accused him of having Valentine won up for his mistress. With maddening reiteration like that, they had disposed of an estate, they had settled up a number of business matters, they had decided that his heir was to be brought up as a papist, the mother's religion. They had gone, agonisedly enough, into their own relationships and past history, into the very paternity of his child, but always at moments when his mind was like a blind octopus squirming in an agony of knife cuts, she would drop in that accusation. She had accused him of having Valentine won up for his mistress. He swore by the living God he had never realised that he had a passion for the girl till that morning, that he had a passion deep and boundless like the sea, shaking like a tremor of the whole world, an unquenchable thirst, a thing the thought of which made your bowels turn over. But he had not been the sort of fellow who goes into his emotions. Why, damn it, even at that moment when he thought of the girl there in that beastly camp, in that Rembrandt-beshadowed hut, when he thought of the girl he named her to himself, Miss Wanner. It wasn't in that way that a man thought of a young woman whom he was aware of passionately loving. He wasn't aware. He hadn't been aware until that morning. Then that let him out. Undoubtedly, that let him out. A woman cannot throw her man, her official husband, into the arms of the first girl that comes along and consider herself as having any further claims upon him, especially if on the same day you part with him, he going out to France. Did it let him out? Obviously it did. He caught with such rapidity at his glass of rum and water that a little of it ran over on his thumb. He swallowed the lot, being instantly warmed. What in the world was he doing, now, with all this introspection? Hang it all, he was not justifying himself. He had acted perfectly correctly as far as Sylvia was concerned, not perhaps to Miss Warner. Why, if he, Christopher Teachins of Groby, had the need to justify himself, what did it stand for to be Christopher Teachins of Groby? That was the unthinkable thought. Obviously, he was not immune from the seven deadly sins in the way of a man. One might lie, yet not bear false witness against a neighbour. One might kill, yet not without fitting provocation or for self-interest. One might conceive of theft as receiving cattle from the false Scots, which was the Yorkshireman's duty. One might fornicate, obviously, as long as you did not fuss about it unhealthily. That was the right of the seigneur in a world of other ranks. He hadn't personally committed any of these sins to any great extent, one reserved the right to do so and to take the consequences. But what in the world had gone wrong with Sylvia? 
She was giving away her own game, and that he had never known her to do. But she could not have made more certain, if she had wanted to, of returning him to his allegiance to Miss Wanup than by forcing herself there into his private life and doing it with such blatant vulgarity. For what she had done had been to make scenes before the servants. All the while he had been in France, she had been working up to it. Now she had done it, before the Tommies of his own unit. But Sylvia did not make mistakes like that. It was a game. What game? He didn't even attempt a conjecture. She could not expect that he would in the future even extend to her the shelter of his roof. What then was the game? He could not believe that she could be capable of vulgarity except with a purpose. She was a thoroughbred. He had always credited her with being that. And now she was behaving as if she had every mean vice that a mare could have. Or it looked like it. Was that then because she had been in his stable? But how in the world otherwise could he have run their lives? She had been unfaithful to him. She had never been anything but unfaithful to him before or after marriage, in a high-handed way so that he could not condemn her, though it was disagreeable enough to himself. He took her back into his house after she had been off with the fellow Perron. What more could she ask? He could find no answer. And it was not his business. But even if he did not bother about the motives of the poor beast of a woman, she was the mother of his heir. And now she was running about the world, declaiming about her wrongs. What sort of a thing was that for a boy to have happened to him? A mother who made scenes before the servants. That was enough to ruin any boy's life. There was no getting away from it, that that was what Sylvia had been doing. She had deluged the general with letters for the last two months or so, at first merely contenting herself with asking where he, Teachens, was, and in what state of health, conditions of danger and the like. Very decently for some time, the old fellow had said nothing about the matter to him. He had probably taken the letters to be the naturally anxious inquiries of a wife with a husband at the front. He had considered that Teachin's letters to her must have been insufficiently communicative or concealed what she imagined to be wounds or a position of desperate danger. That would not have been very pleasant in any case. Women should not worry superior officers about the vicissitudes of their menfolk. It was not done. Still, Sylvia was very intimate with Campion and his family, more intimate than he himself was, though Campion was his godfather. But quite obviously her letters had got worse and worse. It was difficult for Teachens to make out exactly what she had said. His channel of information had been Levin, who was too gentlemanly ever to say anything direct at all. Too gentlemanly, too implicitly trustful of Teachens' honour, and too bewildered by the charms of Sylvia, who had obviously laid herself out to bewilder the poor staffwaller but she had gone pretty far, either in her letters or in her conversation, since she had been in that city to which, it was characteristic, she had come without any sort of passports or papers, just walking past gentlemen in their wooden boxes at pierheads and the like, in conversation with, of all people in the world, with Perone, who had been returning from leave with King's Dispatches or something glorified of the staff sort. In a special train, very likely, that was Sylvia all over. Levin said that Campion had given Perone the most frightful dressing down he had ever heard mortal man receive. And it really was damn hard on the poor general, who, after happenings to one of his predecessors, had been perfectly rabid to keep skirts out of his headquarters. 
Indeed, it was one of the crosses of Levin's worried life that the general had absolutely refused him, Levin, leave to marry Mr. Bay, if he would not undertake that the young woman should leave France by the first boat after the ceremony. Levin, of course, was to go with her, but the young woman was not to return to France for the duration of hostilities, and a fine row all her noble relatives had raised over that. It had cost Levin another hundred and fifty thousand francs in the marriage settlements. The married wives of officers, in any case, were not allowed in France, though you could not keep out their unmarried ones. Campion, anyhow, dispatched his furious note to Tietjens after receiving, firstly, in the early morning, a letter from Sylvia in which she said that her ducal second cousin, the lugubrious Rougely, highly disapproved of the fact that Tietjens was in France at all, and after later receiving, towards four in the afternoon, a telegram dispatched by Sylvia herself from Havre to say that she would be arriving by a noon train. The general had been almost as much upset at the thought that his car would not be there to meet Sylvia as by the thought that she was coming at all. But a strike of French railway civilians had delayed Sylvia's arrival. Campion had dispatched within five minutes his snorter to Tietjens, who he was convinced knew all about Sylvia's coming and his car to Rouen station with Levin in it. The general, in fact, was in a fine confusion. He was convinced that Tietjens, as man of intellect, had treated Sylvia badly, even to the extent of stealing two pairs of her best sheets. And he was also convinced that Tietjens was in close collusion with Sylvia. As man of intellect, Campion was convinced, Tietjens was dissatisfied with his lowly job of draft-forwarding officer and wanted a place of an extravagantly cushy kind in the general's own entourage. And Levin had said that it made it all the worse that Campion, in his bothered heart, thought that Tietjens really ought to have more exalted employment. He had said to Levin, Damn it all, the fellow ought to be in command of my intelligence instead of you. But he's unsound, that's what he is, unsound. He's too brilliant. And he'd talk both the hind legs off Swedel Pumpkins. Swedel Pumpkins was the general's favourite charger. The general was afraid of talk. He practically never talked with anyone except about his job, certainly never to Tietjens, without being proved to be in the wrong, and that undermined his belief in himself. So that, altogether, he was in a fine fume and confusion. He was almost ready to believe that Tietjens was at the bottom of every trouble that occurred in his immense command. But, when all that was gathered, Tietjens was not so much farther forward in knowing what his wife's errand in France was. She complains, Levin had bleated painfully at some point on the slippery coast guard path, about your taking her sheets, and about a Miss, uh, a Miss Wannerstrocht, is it? The general is not inclined to attach much importance to the sheets. It appeared that a sort of conference on Tietjen's case had taken place in the immense tapestried salon in which Campion lived with the more intimate members of his headquarters, and which was, for the moment, presided over by Sylvia, who had exposed various wrongs to the general and Levin. Major Perone had excused himself on the ground that he was hardly competent to express an opinion. Really, Levin said, he was sulking because Campion had accused him of running the risk of getting himself and Mrs. Tietjens talked about. Levin thought it was a bit thick of the general. Were none of the members of his staff ever to escort a lady anywhere? As if they were sixth-form schoolboys? But you, 
you, you, he stuttered and shivered together, certainly do seem to have been remiss in not writing to Mrs. Teachins. The poor lady, excuse me, really appears to have been out of her mind with anxiety. That was why she had been waiting in the general's car at the bottom of the hill, to get a glimpse of Teachin's living body. For they had been utterly unable up at HQ to convince her that Teachin's was even alive, much less in that town. She hadn't, in fact, waited even so long, having apparently convinced herself by conversation with the sentries outside the guardroom that Teachin's actually still existed, she had told the chauffeur orderly to drive her back to the Hotel de la Poste, leaving the wretched Levin to make his way back into the town by tram, or as best he might. They had seen the lights of the car below them turning with its gaily lit interior and disappearing among the trees along the road farther down. The sentry, rather monosyllabically and gruffly, you can tell all right when a Tommy has something at the back of his mind, informed them that the sergeant had turned out the guard so that all his men together could assure the lady that the captain was alive and well. The obliging sergeant said that he had adopted that manoeuvre which generally should attend only the visits of general officers and once a day for the CO, because the lady had seemed so distressed at having received no letters from the captain. The guardroom itself, which was unprovided with cells, was decorated by the presence of two drunks who, having taken it into their heads to destroy their clothing, were in a state of complete nudity. The sergeant hoped, therefore, that he had done no wrong. Rightly, the garrison military police ought to take drunks picked up outside the camp to the APM's guardroom, but seeing the state of undress and the violent behaviour of these two, the sergeant had thought right to oblige the red caps. The voices of the drunks singing the martial anthem of the men of Harlech could be heard corroborating the sergeant's opinion as to their state. He added that he would not have turned out the guard if it had not been for its being the captain's lady. A damn smart fellow, that sergeant, Colonel Levin had said. There couldn't have been any better way of convincing Mrs. Teachins. Teachins had said, and even whilst he was saying it, he tremendously wished he hadn't. Ah, oh, damn smart fellow, for the bitter irony of his tone had given Levin the chance to remonstrate with him as to his attitude towards Sylvia. Not at all as to his actions, for Levin conscientiously stuck to his thesis that Teachins was the soul of honour, but just as to his tone of voice in talking of the sergeant who had been kind to Sylvia, and just precisely because Teachins not writing to his wife had given rise to the incident. Teachins had thought of saying that, considering the terms on which they had parted, he would have considered himself as molesting the lady if he had addressed to her any letter at all. But he said nothing and for a quarter of an hour the incident resolved itself into soliloquy on the slippery hillside delivered by Levin on the subject of matrimony. It was a matter which, naturally, at that moment, very much occupied his thoughts. He considered that a man should so live with his wife that she should be able to open all his letters. That was his idea of the idyllic. And when Teachins remarked with irony that he had never in his life either written or received a letter that his wife might not have read, Teachins exclaimed with such enthusiasm as almost to lose his balance in the mist. I was sure of it, old fellow, but it enormously cheers me up to hear you say so. He added that he desired, as far as possible, to model his ideas of life and his behaviour on those of this his friend. For naturally... 
about as he was to unite his fortunes with those of Mr. Bai, that could be considered a turning point of his career. End of part one, chapter three.